Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode two of The Last Crusades and the title of this episode is The Alexandrian Crusade. So in the last episode we heard about the fairly apathetic reaction in Europe to the destruction of Outremer in 1291. The reason for this was that Europe was a very different place to what it had been 200 years before. In the 11th century when the first crusade took place there had been this huge popular fervour to go on crusade, which was really quite extraordinary if you think about it. Hundreds of thousands of men, women and even children embarked on an expedition to travel thousands of miles when most of them had never stepped outside their villages. But in the 13th century, that religious zeal had gone. Popular preachers like Peter the Hermit simply didn't exist anymore. Instead, there were men of letters like Fidencio of Padua who wrote books about the need for a crusade and the disgrace to Christendom of losing the Holy Land. But their audience was restricted to the Pope, the kings of Europe and the nobility, and they didn't really have any popular appeal. Another crucial difference lay with the power of the papacy, because the popes in the 13th century were much weaker than they had been before. Indeed, they'd been forced to flee Rome because of the chaotic political situation in central Italy, and were based in Avignon, really under the control of the French king. But despite all of this, the idea of a crusade wasn't completely dead. The Kingdom of Cyprus was still in the front line, fighting the Mamluks, who were also still fighting the Mongols. And in 1365, there was one last crusade against the Mamluks called the Alexandrian Crusade, because it was directed against the city of Alexandria in Egypt. So, let's hear the story of this crusade. As before, I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy Enjoy it. In the year 1359, Peter I ascended to the throne of Cyprus. He was the first monarch since King Louis IX of France to have a burning and overwhelming desire to fight the Holy War. As a young man, he'd founded a new order of chivalry, the so-called Knights of the Sword, whose one avowed objective was to recover Jerusalem. And he'd braved his father, King Hugh IV's displeasure by attempting to travel to the West to win recruits for his crusade. His first wars as king were against the Turks in Anatolia, where he'd obtained a foothold by the acquisition of the fortress of Corycus from the Armenians. In 1362, he set out on a general tour of Christendom to further his idea for a crusade. After visiting Rhodes, where he secured promises of help from the hospital, he sailed to Venice, where he stayed over the new year of 1363. The Venetians were officially sympathetic to his plans. After calling at Milan, he went to Genoa. There he was busy settling differences between his kingdom and the Republic and winning a vague support from the Genoese. He arrived at Avignon on the 25th of March 1363, a few months after the accession of Pope Urban V. His first task was to defend his right to his throne against his nephew Hugh, Prince of Galilee, son of his late elder brother. Hugh was compensated with an annual pension of 50,000 Byzants. While he was at Avignon, 
King John II of France visited the city and promised him his warm cooperation. The two kings took the cross together in April, together with many of the French and Cypriot nobility. At the same time, the Pope preached the Holy War and appointed Cardinal Talihon as its legate. Peter then made a circuitous route through Flanders, Brabant and the Rhineland. In August, he went to Paris to see King John once more. They decided that the crusade should be launched the following March. From Paris, Peter went to Rouen and Caen and sailed across to England. He spent about a month in London, where a great tournament was held in his honour at Smithfield. King Edward III presented him with a handsome ship, the Catherine, and with money to cover all his recent expenses. Unfortunately, he was robbed by highwaymen on his way back to the coast. He returned to Paris for Christmas, then went south to Aquitaine to interview the Black Prince at Bordeaux. While he was there, he learned to his sorrow of the deaths first of Cardinal Talleyrand in January 1364, then of the French King John in May. He went to John's funeral at Saint-Denis and to the coronation of his successor, Charles V, at Reims, and then moved into Germany. The knights and burghers of Esslingen and Erfurt offered to join his crusade, but the Margrave of Franconia and Rudolf II, Duke of Saxony, though they received him with honour, both said that their decision must depend on the German emperor. He therefore went with Rudolf to Prague, where the German emperor Charles was in residence. Charles professed himself to be enthusiastic and invited Peter to accompany him to Krakow to a conference that he was about to hold with the kings of Hungary and Poland. It was there agreed that a circular should be sent to all the princes of the empire, inviting their collaboration in the Holy War. After visiting Vienna, where Rudolf IV, Duke of Austria, promised further help, Peter returned to Venice in November 1364, as his troops had recently helped the Venetians to suppress a revolt in Crete. He was welcomed there with the highest honours. He remained there until the end of June 1365. While he was there, he signed a treaty with Genoa which settled all outstanding differences. Meanwhile, Pope Urban wrote indefatigably to the princes of Europe to urge them to join the expedition, and his efforts were energetically seconded by the new papal legate to the east, Peter of Salignac de Thomas nominal patriarch of Constantinople, a man of fierce integrity, equally opposed to schismatics, heretics and infidels, but of a devotion that was respected even by those that he persecuted. Working with him was his pupil, Philip of Mazières, a close friend of King Peter, who had appointed him Chancellor of Cyprus. All their united activity did not produce the number of recruits that King Peter had expected and been promised. No Germans came forward, and none of the greater nobles of France or England. But there were many lesser knights coming even from so far afield as Scotland, and already before King Peter left Venice, a large and formidable army had gathered there. The Venetian 
contribution was particularly useful, but the Genoese held back. It was decided that the Crusade should assemble at Rhodes in August 1365, but its further destination was kept secret. The risk that some Venetian trader would inform the Muslims was too dangerous. King Peter arrived at Rhodes early in the month, and on the 25th, the whole Cypriot fleet sailed into the harbour. A hundred and eight vessels in all galleys, transports, merchant ships and light skiffs. With the great galleys of the Venetians and those provided by the hospital, the Armada numbered 165 ships. They carried a full complement of men with ample horses, provisions and arms. Not since the Third Crusade had a similar-sized expedition set out for the Holy War. And though there was disappointment that no great kings from the West were present, there was the counter-advantage that King Peter of Cyprus was the unquestioned leader. In October, he wrote to his queen, Eleanor of Aragon, that everything was ready. At the same time, he issued an order warning all his subjects in Syria to return home and forbidding them to trade there. He wished it to be thought that Syria was his objective. On the 4th of October, the patriarch Peter preached a stirring sermon to the assembled sailors from the royal galley. That evening, the fleet set sail. When all the ships were at sea, it was announced that the destination was Alexandria in Egypt. Once a decision to attack the Mamluk Sultan was made, the choice of Alexandria as an objective was intelligent. It would be impracticable to invade Syria or Palestine without a base on the coast, and the ports there, with the exception of Tripoli, had been deliberately ruined by the Egyptians. But past experience showed that when the ruler of Egypt lost Damietta, he had been ready to see Jerusalem for its recovery. Alexandria was a richer prize even than Damietta. Its conquerors could strike a still more profitable bargain. It would also be an excellent base for a further advance, for it was certainly amply provisioned, and the canals made it easy to defend from the land. It was, moreover, the port for almost all the Mamluk Sultan's overseas trade. Its loss would subject his dominions to a drastic form of economic blockade. It was also unlikely that he would expect an attack on a city where Christian merchants had such large interests. The moment, too, was well chosen. The reigning Sultan, Shaban, was a boy of 11. Power was in the hands of the Emir Yalboga, who was disliked by his fellow Emirs and by the people. In addition, the governor of Alexandria was away on a pilgrimage to Mecca and his deputy was a junior officer and had been left with a hopelessly inadequate garrison. On the other hand, the walls of Alexandria were notoriously strong, even if its two harbours and the Pharos Peninsula that lay between them were captured, there were still great fortifications along the harbour front. The Crusader Armada arrived off Alexandria during the evening of the 9th of October. The citizens at first thought that it was a great merchant fleet and prepared to go out to bargain. It was only when next morning the ships entered the western harbour instead of the eastern, which alone was permitted to Christian ships, that their intentions became apparent. The acting governor, Jangara, hastened to concentrate his men on the foreshore to prevent a landing. But despite the gallantry of some Maghrabi soldiers, the Christian knight 
Canaanites forced their way ashore. While native merchants streamed out of the city through the landward gates, Jangara retired behind the walls and collected his small garrison to hold the sector opposite to the landing. King Peter intended to pause in his attack. He wished to land all his men and horses at leisure onto the Pharos Peninsula. But when he took counsel of his commanders, he found that many of them disapproved of the choice of Alexandria as an objective. They were too few, they said, either to hold so large a fortress or to advance from there to Cairo. They wished to sail away elsewhere, but would stay if the city were at once taken by storm before the Mamluk Sultan could send a relieving force. Peter was therefore obliged to comply with their wishes, and the assault began at once. It was launched against the West Wall, as Jangara had expected, but when they were held there, the assailants moved to the section opposite the eastern harbour. Within these walls, access between the two sections ran through the great customs house, and an officious customs officer, fearing robberies, had barricaded the doors. Jangara could not move his men in time to face the new attack. Believing that the city was lost, they began to desert their posts and flee through the streets to the southern gates and safety. By midday on Friday the 10th, the Crusaders were well established within the city. Fighting continued in the streets during the Friday night. There was a fierce Muslim counterattack through one of the southern gates, which the Christians in their excitement had burnt down. It was beaten off, and by the Saturday afternoon, all Alexandria was in the Crusaders' hands. The victory was celebrated with particular savagery. Two and a half centuries of holy warfare had taught the Crusaders nothing of humanity. The massacres were only equalled by those of Jerusalem in 1099 and Constantinople in 1204. The Muslims had not been so ferocious at Antioch or at Acre. Alexandria's wealth had been phenomenal and the victors were maddened at the sight of so much booty. They spared no one. The native Christians and the Jews suffered as much as the Muslims, and even the European merchants settled in the city saw their factories and storehouses ruthlessly looted. Mosques and tombs were raided and their ornaments stolen or destroyed. Churches too were sacked, though a gallant crippled Coptic lady managed to save some of the treasures of her church at the sacrifice of her private fortune. Houses were entered and householders who did not immediately hand over all their possessions were slaughtered with their families. Some 5,000 prisoners, Christians and Jews as well as Muslims, were taken to be sold as slaves. A long line of horses, asses, camels carried the loot to the ships in the harbour and there, having performed their task, they were killed. The whole city stank with the odour of human and animal corpses. King Peter vainly tried to restore order. He'd hoped to hold the city, and as the Crusaders had burnt its gates, he demolished the bridge by which the road to Cairo crossed the Great Canal. But the Crusaders now only wished to take their plunder home as quickly as possible. An army was coming up from Cairo, and they were unwilling to risk a battle. Even the king's own brother told him that the city was indefensible, while the Viscount of Turenne, with most of the English and French, Knights roundly said that they would not remain any longer. Peter 
and the papal legate protested in vain. By Thursday the 16th, only a few Cypriot troops remained in the city. The rest of the expedition had returned to their ships ready to depart. As the Mamluks had already reached the suburbs, Peter himself embarked on his galley and gave the order for evacuation. So heavily laden were the ships that it was necessary to jettison many of the larger pieces of loot. For months to come, Egyptian divers salvaged precious objects from the shallow waters of Abu Kir. Peter and the legate had hoped that when their gains were safely stored in Cyprus, the crusaders would start out again with him on a new expedition. But no sooner had they reached Famagusta in Cyprus than they all began to make arrangements to journey home to the west. The legate prepared to follow them to win other recruits in their place, but he fell mortally ill before he could leave the island. King Peter held a service of thanksgiving on his return to Nicosia in Cyprus, but his heart was sore. His report to the Pope told of his triumph, but also of his bitter disappointment. The news of the sack of Alexandria had a mixed reception in the West. It was first hailed as a military triumph and a humiliation for Islam. The Pope was delighted, but saw that King Peter must have immediate reinforcements to take the place of the deserters. King Charles of France promised to send an army, the most celebrated of his knights, Bertrand du Guesclin, took the cross, and Amadeus, Count of Savoy, known in romance as the Green Knight, who was preparing a journey to the east, decided to sail for Cyprus. But then the Venetians announced that King Peter had made peace with the Mamluk Sultan. King Charles countermanded his army. Du Guesclin went to fight in Spain, and Amadeus to Constantinople. The Venetians unlike the Pope, had not been pleased by the outcome of the crusade. They had hoped to use it to strengthen their commercial hold on the Levant. Instead, their ample property in Alexandria had been destroyed and their whole Egyptian trade had been interrupted. The sack of Alexandria came near to ruining them as a commercial power to the delight of the Genoese, whose restraint had been rewarded. Soon, the whole of the West experienced the effects of the crusade. The price of spices and silk and other eastern goods to which the public was now accustomed rose steeply as the supplies ran out and were not renewed. King Peter had in fact opened negotiations with the Mamluks, but both sides were too bitter to wish for peace. When the Emir Yalboga, hampered by his unpopularity in Egypt, played for time until he could build a fleet for the invasion of Cyprus, Peter made extravagant demands for the cession of the Holy Land and followed them up with raids on the Syrian coast. But his crusading mania began to alarm his subjects, who feared... Later, the resources of the island would be exhausted in a hopeless cause. When a knight with whom Peter had quarrelled planned his murder in 1369, not even his own brothers lifted a finger to save him. The year after his death, a treaty was signed with the Mamluk Sultan. Prisoners were exchanged and Cyprus and Egypt settled down to an uneasy peace. The Holocaust at Alexandria marks the end of those crusades whose direct object was the recovery of the Holy Land. Even had all the Crusaders been as devoted as King Peter, it is doubtful whether the expedition could ever have been to the benefit of Christendom. When it took place, Egypt had been at peace with the Crusaders for over half a century. The Mamluks had begun to lose their earlier fanaticism, their Christian subjects were receiving kinder treatment, pilgrims were freely allowed to the holy places, 
Commerce was flourishing between East and West. Now all the bitterness of the Muslims was revived. The native Christians, guiltless though they were, underwent a new period of persecution. Churches were destroyed. Even the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem was closed for three years. The interruption to commerce did serious damage all round to a world that had not yet recovered from the ravages of the Black Death. The Kingdom of Cyprus whose existence the Mamluks had been ready to tolerate became an enemy to be deleted. Egypt waited 60 years for its revenge, but the ghastly devastation of the island in 1426 was a direct punishment for the sack of Alexandria. The only other Christian kingdom in the Levant met with an earlier doom. The Armenians of Cilicia had taken no part in King Peter's crusade, but their royal house was now Frankish and many of the nobility had close connections with Cyprus. Their church had admitted the rule of Rome throughout the 14th century. The Mamluks had pressed on them, suspecting them rightly to be friends of the crusaders and the Mongols, and jealous of the wealth that passed through their country by the trade route that reached the sea at Ayas. The collapse of the Mongol Ilkhanate deprived them of their chief support. Most of their territory was annexed in 1337 by the Turks. In 1375, while the Cypriots were engrossed in a bitter war with Genoa, Muslim invaders, Mamluks and Turks in alliance completed the subjection of the country. The last Armenian king, Leo VI, fled to the West and died as an exile in Paris, and Armenian independence was ended. Indeed, a crusade such as King Peter planned was now an anachronism. Christendom could not afford such luxuries. It had to face too serious a threat further to the north of the Mamluks. This was to come from the rise of a new superpower, the Ottoman Turks. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll move on to the rise of the Ottoman Turks who would dominate the history of the Middle East and indeed the wider world. See you then. 